Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. We are your hosts, Kim France. And I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm wondering, Jen, how are you doing today? I am doing, well, wait, first, first I'm going to say today our guest on the show is the author Jamie Lowe. And later on the show, we talked to Jamie Lowe about her new book, Breathing Fire, which is a book about the female inmate firefighters uh, fighting California wildfires. And Jamie also wrote a book called Mental about her mental health. Um, But in answer to your question, I'm okay. I think actually you're the one with the bigger bigger thing to talk about this week. Well, I I have had a little, you know, I, I was, I went to urgent care today. I went to urgent care today. I've been having these kind of like sharp pains in my, in my right side, in my chest. And um, I went to the doctor a little while ago and my blood pressure was very high. So she said, keep an eye on that, you know? And of course I bought a blood pressure monitor and did it once and then didn't keep an eye on that. But over the weekend, I started getting really worried. Like what, you know, I'm having tingling in my arm. So we went to urgent cat care. We went to urgent care. They did an EKG. They did everything else. And it turns out I'm, I'm fine. But, you know, I do have this high blood pressure and I just, I'm, I'm, I was just thinking on the way back from the doctor, like, I'm almost, I'll be 60 in three years. Like, it is time, Kim. It is time to start eating small quantities of food that has been steamed. It is time to start exercising. It is time to start behaving like somebody who is getting older and wants to live a long time. And I feel I feel a little res- I feel a little resigned to it, but it, it I mean I also feel a little ashamed that you know I'm I, I'm three years from sixty and just now figuring this out. Well, you know? I mean yes, I do know I know all of that. And one of the things we talked about when we talked this morning, I similarly so I I um I got on some hormone replacement therapy and. I'd been fucking it all up. Um, I didn't, they missed a very like clutch instruction of when I'm supposed to take them with the pharmacy. Didn't, they didn't include in the instructions. And, and then I also was inconsistent with taking them and my body has been crazy. I've similarly had like some tingling and all, all kinds of fucked up things in my body. And what keeps coming up again and again, and then what I keep resisting is I need to be consistent for the first time in my life. Like I need to have a level of care and consistency, and I take pretty good care of myself, but not consistently. And like, even I asked you, like, are you drinking enough water? It's so stupid. I'm the thing is, you said, I forget what you said, but I thought you were going to say resentful. Oh, you said resigned. I thought you were going to say resentful because I am resentful that my body is requiring, and I should just be grateful because it could things could be so much worse, but I'm a little resentful that I have to be so consistent or I feel so out of whack. 
And I do, and I, and then I feel ashamed. Like, why, why can't I just be a grown up about this? Why can't I? Why am I not drinking whatever it is at this point, a gallon of water a day? Why don't I take my fish oil every morning and my vitamin D every morning? Like, why do I skip things? Why am I failing myself? Yep, yep. And that's exactly how it feels to me. Like, I look at my mother, and she has mastered being 84 years old. You know, she's got it down. She's got her routines. She swims in the bay every day in the summer. Like, why can't I be more like that? Well, what is the resistance? Because it's obviously what keeps being messaged to both of us. Now, like, whatever you said about, like, so let me go back. Whatever you said about why am I just learning this now? Well, first off, because this shit is boring. Like, let's just be honest. It is boring. And like, it wasn't necessary for either of, for whatever reason, you know, luck, genetics, it wasn't necessarily necessary for either of us until this point in our physical lives, right? Like now it's necessary. So then it's like, well, it's obviously necessary. The messages my body keeps saying is you cannot really drink anymore. That's over for you. Caffeine, eh, not so much. For me, it's even like dairy and sugar. It's just like, just not working out, you know? Right, right. But like why I'm in this this new tailspin with my body is I had a night where I was like, I'm going to drink. I'm going to eat a whole cheese plate to myself. I'm going to have some chocolate chip cookies. And like I just had this like binge. And it set me off for like a week because my body just cannot handle that anymore. Yeah. Or at least in this second where I am in this goddamn perimenopause, it can't handle it. I'm also, by the way, in one of those forever periods. Sorry for listeners, but I'm in one of those like, when will it end? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I just keep hitting the button on the tracker. Yep, another day. There we go. Wow. Um, but what it feels like is this feels like the ultimate self-care right this consistency it's not mm -hmm. pulling out a face mask it's not buying a 200 dollar you know serum mm -hmm. this this is the ultimate self-care right now how much do we care about ourselves to consistently take care of ourselves to drink the water to sleep to get as much sleep as we possibly can to goddamn exercise mm-hmm I think that's an excellent point, and I think you're really right. I think I, you're right. It I is wasn't trying of... to shame you, though. I, I love no, you. No, 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 no. compassion for you. <laughs> <laughs> Me, you, my friend. Okay. But, but my friend. I said that like I was, I don't know, Robin Hood or something. Um, no, I feel, I, I feel like it's, it's a really good point and kind of an um, empathetic point, right? That... This is this is really a thing we can do for ourselves and, and, and trying to practice so much shame around not doing it and just do it. Just do it. I mean these the themes are emerging, right? The themes are emerging. Like I I've been I've been doing a lot of cleaning out of closets and drawers because we keep talking about this stuff. Like it's making me feel kind of I just am changing. So the things that worked before, like a closet you opened and everything fell out, just, I didn't care. And I was in therapy for years, like talking to therapists about like, why don't any of my spoons match? And the therapist was <laughs> like, maybe you don't care about that. And I was like, you're right, I don't. But now order in all aspects of my life feels good and feels like something I want to commit to because it makes me feel better. And it makes the unknown a little less scary. Yes. 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 But there is a thing of, you know, our bodies are a mystery. And we should do the things that we think are right. You know, drink the water, do the exercising, try to sleep, eat as well as possible. Don't, don't eat, you know, foods that don't make you feel well. I do think there is a thing of... Um, 
in the wellness industrial complex of just, and, and this is why we feel bad because there is so much shaming. It's, it's designed to make us feel shame. This like alternative health, like, well, it's your responsibility. Like, no bodies are fucked up and weird. Like you can only do so you could do to a certain point, but like you could also drive yourself crazy, like doing a juice cleanse and, oh, now I'm doing this and I'm going to get a colonic and blah, blah, blah. Like as if you have, it creates this false sense of control that you don't really have. Yep. Yep. I think that's true. I don't know if that's a contradiction, but how are you feeling now? I feel all right. I feel all right. You know, came home, talked to you, continue with the day. And, and now, I mean, I felt like getting the EKG was a good thing because otherwise I was going to be going absolutely crazy, you know? Right. And but driving- the thing, right, driving yourself crazy. But the thing was what you said to me, and this is what's so funny, is that so much of the time because our muscles and bones don't work the same way. I'm finding this too. So much of the time, it's like I carried something weird and the next day I'm like, I'm having a heart attack. And what was it? You said it was a pinched nerve, right? Yeah, well, Paul was saying, Paul was saying, we just got off of a bus. We were on a bus for two weeks. You don't think you were sitting in some weird position that caused that? Like, why not, why, why not go there instead of heart attack? Right, right. And part of the self-care is also not catastrophizing. Yep. Yep. I think it's really important and exhausting to those around you. Oh, well, totally. Totally. I mean, I have to, I have to like, um, trade out who I talk to about things, <laughs> you know, did I tell you, and I don't know if I've said this on the podcast, but my mother-in-law lives basically, she doesn't live in like a, a formalized retirement community, but everyone who lives around her is retired and they go for walks and they have a rule that they can only talk about their health for five minutes. That's awesome. Which I think is smart because I think, you know, shit's just going to start breaking down. I have a friend who's our age who's just like experiencing like all this weird nerve stuff in her like left side and nobody can figure out what it is. It's like changing hormones, changing bodies, getting older. Yep. Yep. It's true. Things just, you know, they, they break down a little easier. They break down a little easier, but I'm glad yeah. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm great. Things are fine. You know, ready for fall. How about Everything you? Everything is fine. Everything is fine. <laughs> Everything <laughs> is fine. Everything's fine. Okay, with that, let's get into this episode, which I think everyone is really going to like. Me too. Our guest today is Jamie Lowe. Jamie is the author of the new book, Breathing Fire, about incarcerated female firefighters on the front lines of California, California's wildfires as the state is ravaged by climate change. She previously published the 2018 memoir, Mental, Lithium, Love, and Losing My Mind, and Digging for Dirt, The Life and Death of ODB, a biography of Old Dirty Bastard. She's a frequent contributor to the New York Times Magazine and has created audio pieces for both Radiolab and This American Life. Welcome, Jamie. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my God, it's such a pleasure to have you. Um, And this book is so fascinating and also such an accomplishment. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. Um, So I know the answer to this already, but I'm going to ask because I know listeners don't know. uh, What drew you to write this book about female firefighters? So um, I... I'm from California. I grew up in Los Angeles. I was born in Oakland and I spend a lot of time at home because my family is there and I was at home at my mom's house reading the LA Times and I was reading this article and there was a under 500 word story about a woman who had died, who was incarcerated, who was fighting a wildfire. And her name was Shanalyn Jones. And I was just completely struck by two things. One, that this program existed, that there were 44 camps throughout California that were made up of incarcerated firefighters and that also were 30% of the wildland firefighters in California at the time. And that they were, you know, they were prisoners and firefighters at the same time. And the second part that really struck me was that Shanalyn Jones was basically reduced to about two sentences 
and it all revolved around her crime and that she was from Lancaster, California. And I felt like I really just wanted to know more about her. And that's where it started. So how long did it take you to um, to write and re- report this out? Or to report this? I mean, it's, I imagine it was a lot of reporting. Yeah, it was, um, you know, the I, it started as a magazine article. And I started that when I read the newspaper article. It was February 2016. And... Um, I really, I spent like an, a year and a half working on the article, which is uh, way too long to work on anything that is right. ultimately 5,000 words. But um, I was able to, in that time, visit all three of the female camps, go to the training camp, which is at the main women's state prison. And when the article came out and I decided I wanted to actually expand it into a book, it was really, really important to me to talk about and to interview women who I had come across while I was at the camps who had lived through the program and who then were, you know, experiencing reentry and whether or not the program actually helped them. So I guess the beginning of it was five years ago. And then, you know, I'm a freelance writer, so I can't spend every second on one project. And so there, I sort of toggle between a couple of things. But, uh, you know, it was part of my life for five years. That's longer than a lot of relationships I've had. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> totally. No, they really opened up to you. Was there... Is, how did you think about gaining trust and how did you think about what you were going to do with that trust once you gained it? Do you know what I mean? Like these are, this is a really intimate relationship in a lot of ways, you know, with these, telling these women's stories. Yeah. I mean, I'm always shocked that people will, are willing to be interviewed in the first place. Like it's always the first hurdle and something that I think is so sacred because it really is in it's so much trust and it's trust in a stranger. And I honestly don't know what compels people to do it, except that I think um, for the most part, I just try and explain exactly what I want to do and that I want to tell their story. And most people want their stories told, especially if they feel like they haven't had the opportunity to actually talk about what's going on. And when you're Um, you know, part of a formerly incarcerated population or you are incarcerated, there are huge restrictions on what you can say about your life and what your life has been. Like some, some of it is that people just don't care or hear about it. And some of it is that when you are incarcerated, you're just not allowed to talk about it. Like it's against the rules, literally. Yeah, I mean, everything is monitored. Everything could potentially be added to your sentence. Um, you know, there's, they're prisoners. Their bodies belong to the state. Wow. So, so would that could be, so anyway, yeah. So, the, the, you know, they earn, in this program, right, they earn 8 to 95 cents an hour, and this job is like totally dangerous, totally exhausting, but it's also considered a great job. Why Why is that? So they actually earn less than that. Um, they earn, when I started reporting, they earned $2.56 a day in camp when it oh wasn't fire season, and then a dollar an hour when they were on the fire lines. And it's since been raised to $5 a day in camp and a dollar an hour on the fire lines, um, which is shocking compared to civilian pay, which is also shockingly low. Um, so there's, there's that. But one of the things that makes it attractive in prison, there's a lot of things. Uh, one is that it is one of the highest paid jobs within prison industries, um, which tells you a lot about the rest of the jobs, which are sometimes two cents an hour, 20 cents an hour. Um, The other part of it is that you're not living in a state prison, which is, you know, described to, was described to me by the women I interviewed, but then also in so many other 
records as this dehumanizing, this place of, I mean, it sounds like hell to me. It, um, there's the food is horrible. There's like violence, there's sexual predation from correctional officers. There's no sense of safety or, you know, it's, it's basically a day-to-day survival thing. And when you're in camp, you're actually in the woods, you're in these like really kind of beautiful places without fences. Your families can visit, you know, one of the women I talked to recently was describing to me visiting with her daughter at state prison where they could only touch hands against plexiglass window. But when she was in camp, you know, they could hug each other and there was like actual physical contact and they can, you can rent a cabin for a night and have your family stay over. There's better food. You're, you know, out there working. You're putting your life on the line, but you're, you're spent, you're serving your time in a way that it passes quicker, I think, is what was described. Is, is it worse? Is it worse for the women than it is for the men? Do you think? I mean, or what is the, what are the differences? I mean, because there's also male incarcerated firefighters, right? Right. And there's juvenile incarcerated firefighters. Really? Yeah. Um, That's kind of mind blowing. Completely. Uh, They, I think they're trying to do less juvenile firefighting, but. Jesus um, Christ. Yeah. (laughs) Um. The I don't, you know, I didn't write about the men and I didn't interview that many men. The people I've came across who were formerly incarcerated firefighters who were men were less. I didn't interview them formally. And so I don't know exactly what the differences are. But the one thing that's really different about being on a female crew than in the free world is that they're all female. And so when you're trying to get into firefighting in the free world, you're one woman usually on a crew of all men. And it's incredibly, um, I mean, it's very sexist. It's very difficult and discriminatory to actually succeed as a female firefighter in the free world. But in, for some, you know, in the, in the incarcerated program, because it's all women, there's this sort of equal playing field where all everybody can kind of work together on the same level. It doesn't seem quite fair that they're not allowed to become civilian firefighters upon their release. It is most definitely not fair. And it's kind of nuanced because um, forestry, the, the federal firefighters, they actually will accept... Um, firefighters if they have felonies on their record. So it's possible. It's really, really hard. There are still a lot of hurdles to overcome. You have to retake all of the testing that you've already done in camp. You have to redo all of the training, even if you've worked three seasons. And so you have to start all over. And there's when you're facing re-entry, which is one of the more difficult parts of incarceration, and you're trying to enter into this really difficult field with no support, both financially and just in terms of what to do, it's really, really difficult. Do you think that we should continue programs like this in prisons? I mean, on the one hand, it feels really exploitative, particularly the pay. But on the other hand, it seems like a better way to support rehabilitation, particularly if there is an opportunity to pursue this as a profession, if you're a woman who's, you know, really likes it. I think that the program should exist, and I think it should exist independently of CDCR, the Corrections Department of California. And I think that, you know, one way that you could do that is to fold it onto the California Conservation Corps. Or, you know, I think in the infrastructure bill, there's the Civilian Climate Corps is one of the suggestions. And I think we absolutely need, you know, an army of people fighting climate change. And if these women and these men and juveniles are, you know, 
safe enough to be out there fighting fires, then they should be able to do that as free people. And now let's take a quick break for some ads. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin, and I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry leading sustainability standards. You know, I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess, is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Uh, okay, so you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. I want to switch gears here um, because you also wrote a book about your struggle with bipolarity. Um, Was it difficult to out yourself in this way? Hmm. Um, That's a really good question. And, you know, I have always been really open with it. And I think that's because I was diagnosed when I was 16 and I was in high school And it's always been a big part of my identity. And I didn't really, I think that part of this is my personality, which I'm a little bit dumb about things. And I'm just like, well, I guess I'll do that. (laughs) And like, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that I should be nervous or worried about it. The first time um, there was any like red light feeling was that, I it was originally an article for the Times Magazine and my editor before I before he was going to submit the pitch to the top editors and the editor in chief he looked at me and he was like are you sure you want to do this and I was like 
yeah, duh. Like, of course I do. Like, I want to write about this. And this seems like a great place to write about it. And I didn't really think about it. I didn't think about, you know, what it would mean in any way, which is dumb but also you know or open I, or open yeah, yeah. you could be brave. nice to yourself brave exactly <laughs> I mean it wasn't it just wasn't a conscious choice because I think sometimes I'm like well this seems like the next move I guess and, and it didn't I I had always been very vocal about it with anyone who wanted to talk to me about it and because I am a writer it seemed natural to write about it I think also Growing up, my mom really used writing as, like, a way of expressing feelings when I was, like, really angry or pissed off. I was, like, you know, very emotionally volatile child, and she would always just be like, go write it down. And I think (laughs) that was, like, her device to, like, get me to sit down in a different room and sort of try and navigate it. And so, or self regulate too. I mean, that's a good tool for that. I think. Yeah. Go ahead, continue. No, yeah. I was gonna, I, 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 the reason why, one of the reasons why this is so compelling to me is that um, this isn't something I talk about a lot. But in two thousand and five, um, an antidepressant I was taking um, triggered bipolarity in me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was diagnosed with bipolar two, which, for those of you who don't know, is like being bipolar but with slightly better luck than bipolar one. But um, some of your passages were actually painful for me to read. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm going to read this one, even though it's a little long, because it really struck me. Um, After a few months off of lithium, I felt energetic, engaged, even electric. It's hard to know if that feeling was just a ramping up toward mania again, or if it was lifting of a lithium fog. But this is what ended up happening. I turned down jobs and burned all professional bridges with sharp and illogical emails, many of them referring to Eminem. I kept a stash of homemade granola in my pocket to hand out to anyone who would accept a stranger's dirty pocket granola. I developed an alter ego, a rapper named Jamya. I painted my face with spectacular green and gold eyeshadow. I was kicked out of a bar without even drinking. I stood on my head every morning. My apartment burned down. I served as the sole witness to a stranger's wedding at the top of the World Trade Center. I wore 800 necklaces and spoke in a slow growl or sometimes a high-pitched squeal. I saved a corgi from being hit by a cab on Central Park West, on which occasion Ben Vereen stopped to call a dog ambulance. I spoke to strangers with the intensity of a car salesman stuck in a David Mamet monologue. I preached about Jesus wherever I went, which for a Jew is unusual. I spent almost $700 on butternut squash and assorted seasonal gourds. My clothes smelled of fire from the burned out apartment. I scared the scary people on the subway. All that took place over two weeks, maybe three, as I made my way back and forth between Los Angeles and New York. Um, I was like literally painful for me to read um, because I remember that feeling of mania so well and um, the weird, like the moment when it becomes something dangerous, you know, when it's not just sort of being on this like, you know, rush of feeling, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, because that's the precipice, right? That's when... um that's the hardest point to recognize if you're in the throes of a manic episode. Um, you don't recognize that. You know, the people around you do, and then sometimes you don't hear them or listen to them. How was it for you to revisit that time? <sighs> um, it's hard. It's really hard because it... Um, it's one of the most, I don't want to um, romanticize mania in any way, but it's also one of the most oddly dynamic and scary and like raw times of my life where there just so much happened all at once. And so much of that was because there is no filter when you're manic and you just start engaging in everything for better and more often worse. And I think that, you know, there was a sense of loss when I started taking lithium again. And 
depression and sort of mourning where I would look back on that time and think like that person was me I experienced that but I I am not that person and now I don't know how to access that again um and it often you know I think my first psychiatrist described mania as being high on cocaine and you know I've I've done cocaine a little bit and it's like not even close mania is way crazier and better um and so it's like it's just it's really hard to revisit because there's this feeling of like how did all of this happen why did all of this happen what does it mean who was I then who am I now how does it all relate to you know the future and how is it braided together um and so it was hard but it was also really um instructive and kind of like important I think for me to look back on it and have some resolutions about that time period and I think I did it at a time in my life that was like far enough away from it where I had figured out a little bit more about who I am independently of you know being identified as bipolar which is ironic because I'm like now I'm a person here's a book about me being bipolar (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting I imagine that mental health diagnosis, sort of any diagnosis, as we get older and we just can, part of the gift of middle age is the full acceptance and the radical acceptance of the self wherever you are. And I wonder if, you know, age helped. And I don't know if that's been your experience, Jamie, but just like fully being like, oh yeah, that's part of me. That's part of what I am. It doesn't define me, but it's part of me. I, I wonder if that's been your experience and it, getting older has been actually like a gift for that. 100%. Um, I feel like, I mean, not only is getting older a gift for that, but it's also as you get older, your mental health completely changes. And sometimes what you're diagnosed with and how it affects you changes Um, I think that there are different phases of different diagnoses. There are different symptoms. Um, And then you just have more tools, especially if you're really engaged with it. You know, you keep working and figuring out what you need and how you can find that and also how to kind of accept feelings and... um, big feelings, which is, you know, some, some people describe bipolar as big feelings. <laughs> I think that's a little bit of a euphemism, but it's true. Did you have shame around your behavior? And if so, how did you manage that? Um, I definitely did. Um, I, it took me a long time to realize that I had shame around it. And I think part of that was, when I reported the story about cognitive processing therapy, that was one of the things I really resisted where I was like, I'm not ashamed. Like it just happened. It was who I, you know, it's who I am. And, um, but I think the reality is that there are people that I know that I met while I was manic, like for the first time and we still know each other. And there are people who I, have met since like way since then and don't know anything about what manic behavior is and then there are friends who I've known since sixth grade who have been there the whole way and I think um yeah you know professionally especially shame came into play because it was thank god not really the era of social media (laughs) but I sent a lot of emails that were not appropriate (laughs) Um, I I invented a feud between myself and another fashion editor oh my god and I was in Milan at the fashion shows and I walked up to him and I said something like I don't know what your problem with me is but I wish you would get over it something like that and he looked at me and he said I don't know who you are. <laughs> Have you talked to him since? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no. 
I mean, it was so mortifying. Yeah, sometimes though that those convers. I mean, I'm sure it was like a blip, and it's there are so many things happening. But sometimes just that. I think writing the book really because I did go back and talk to everyone made me realize what other people's narratives were around what I experienced. And that's something about mental health that I don't know as intimately what, what it's like to be around somebody who's actually, you know, going crazy and what that means and how you support them. Um, It's a lot harder to sort of imagine that when you're in the throes of it. Um, and I have friends who are bipolar and sometimes I really, um, I, I mean, I sometimes feel shame about how I respond because I am like, I know intimately what's happening, but I can't figure out what to do. Well, also you become kind of unlikable when you're manic, you know, you become really, you can anyway, I should say yeah. like very sure. delusional, very delusional. You think everything would run better if you were running it. Yeah. Um, you know, I have friends from that time who just were like, they checked out and they never came back. And I think some of that, some of it has to do with those people being assholes. But I think some of it also has to do with the fact that mental health issues are still so incredibly stigmatized. Mm-hmm. And it's hard, right? Why is it still so hard at a time when so many things that used to be stigmatized have become accepted? You know, I think that it's just... It's it's similar to addiction issues. It's similar in that I think that um, it's hard not to take behavior personally, and it's hard not to look at someone, hear them, and and say, "I know that you're suffering, and so what you're saying is not true, or it's not real, or you're gonna shift back to the person I know and love." Um, it's really hard to not to like acknowledge what's happening and then also acknowledge another reality, which is that they're suffering. Um, I think that when you're talking about intimate and personal relationships, um, you know, having somebody who is not a reliable narrator is just really difficult. Um, and I think sometimes that's what mental health can be. Um, and maybe that's a bad phrase for it because you are the narrator you are and whatever you are saying and doing is what's happening. But it's hard not to respond to that. Um, that said, you know, I feel like stigma with mental health has really evolved in a lot of ways. Um, and I'm not sure it's 100% for the better, but the conversation is much more out there than it was, I think, when I was 16. And I'm trying to think of what year that was. It was like 1993. I'm old. But it was was not talked about. There weren't kids like that were diagnosed. It was rare. Now I think, you know, I talk with my friends who have kids and most kids have the time of this like school day when everyone's taking medications of various and you know and my friends are like I don't feel like that's good it seems like that's normalized and it's too young and I'm like look if um you know if there was advances in heart health and it meant that people were taking medications to deal with it you wouldn't question it um and I think it's important to to think a lot about what's happening. And I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of... It's a really um, unknown terrain, right? The brain is, is difficult to... It's impossible to figure out. You've been living with this bipolarity for a long time. What, what advice would you give somebody who had just been diagnosed? Well, like what have you what have you learned? What are your best like life hacks for a bipolar oh, wow. person? <laughs> I would not take that advice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think like that's a really complicated question because I think diagnosis can come 
at a lot of different times for people. You know, they can have experienced so many different cycles of mania or depression prior to diagnosis and and then have this aha moment where it's this absolute relief um, or it can come at the first time something's happening and they are completely thrown off by, you know, a, any mental health shift. Um, so it kind of depends on what the symptoms are and have been, I think. For me, I think just building as much support as possible in terms of just friends, psychiatrists, like anything you can possibly do, you should do it. And there's always the very basic um, things which I often, often forget and like need to check in with myself about regularly, which is like, what are you eating? Are you sleeping? And are you exercising? Um, those are really important things that I neglect all the time because who wants to exercise a lot? Um, <laughs> right. But, but I do find like, you know, if I'm really, really agitated, if I'm feeling horrible and I get outside and walk for 45 minutes, I'm a different person afterwards. And I, you know, that's maybe a shitty response, but there's like, that's the smallest thing. I'm yeah, breathing. no, move a muscle, change a thought. Yeah. Breathing helps. Equally, I wonder, what would either of you say, because since you've both struggled with some serious mental health issues, what would either of you say, how are you best supported? What were, what would, how should we be supporting people who are going through struggles with their mental health? Like what helped you, either of you? Such a good question. Yeah, um, I think having people around you who are willing to be there the duration. I mean, because you don't know how long it's going to take. And there are lots of phases of recovery. And, you know, recovery is somewhat of a fallacy. Like, we're kind of constantly trying to get to the point of this concept of normal, which I don't think is real. I think there's a different normal every day. You're, you know, I think basically, you know, thinking back to the end of my last episode, the support I needed the most was probably the my family, because um, I was 25 and uh, I had like, you know, burned all my bridges professionally <laughs> by sending uh-huh. lots of crazy emails. And I had no home, and I had this, like, wild idea that I had fallen in love and wanted to get married to this person I did not know before the manic episode and was determined to do so. Um, But, you know, my family and my mom was, like, so frustrated. I mean, she's this adorable little person who is also incredibly fierce and swears like a truck driver And there were days, I think, where she was just like, I can't deal. Like, I, you know, I would be chain smoking on the porch and she was like, you have to go around the block. I can't see this. I can't like this is too much. (laughs) Like, I can't Uh deal with you. And I think that, um, you know, ultimately there was the patience of my parents are divorced. I've had step parents that have been involved in my life since I was 18 months old And I had this village that was sort of all sort of taking turns trying to make sure I wasn't, I don't know, getting married to a stranger. (laughs) Fine. Or worse. (laughs) That wouldn't have been the worst thing, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I'm thinking, like, because I, I, I sort of just feel like the things that helped me, the people that helped me when I was really out of control were the people who refused to be pissed off at me, who like, who, like, told me when I did something wrong or said something objectionable, but who refused to just get stuck in this anger at me because the people who were just angry at me were no help at all. They made it worse. They made me double down. 
Yeah. So holding space, holding space is what we're saying. Holding space mm-hmm. for another person, a non-judgmental space. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Also, you know, thinking back a little bit on it, and I think this has carried over to like non-manic times and non-depressed times for me as they... I was really, I was really lucky. I felt like a lot of times the universe caught me in ways that it didn't need to. Like people who were complete strangers really kind of stepped in and saw that I was going through something and kind of like silently helped and maybe not so silently sometimes. And that kind of floors me still because I think that that's incredibly lucky and I try to do that sometimes in my life but I also think it's a really hard thing to see somebody who's clearly suffering and then offer to help yeah yeah it feels it feels scary and it also sets you up for all your own a spiral of your all your own self-doubt of like well what if i can't what if i you know then you're in like a, what if i what if i can't take this on what if i'm not capable of helping mm-hmm. what you know all of that um Jamie i i have to say like i heard you say you know i'm done whatever i i think you are one of the bravest people i know and like one of the things that i think is so cool about you a number of things but your curiosity. I think that your career arc is incredible. I think you've become so accomplished in this particularly the last decade. And I think you just keep pursuing things like the episode of This American Life you referenced before 10 sessions. I think about it all the time. It's an extraordinary hour of radio. Everybody should listen to it. And in it, you spent two weeks in Seattle undergoing um, a therapy called cognitive process- processing therapy. It's also called CPT. Um, it's supposed to help people overcome unhealed trauma in just 10 sessions, hence the, the name of the episode. How did it feel to do that? Because you recorded yourself doing this very intense therapy. I mean, I think it was such a service to people. Anyway, you talk now. <laughs> well, first you're going to make me cry. And... Um... <laughs> That's, so that's very difficult just... <laughs> to talk through. Um, but thank you for saying all of that because um, it means a lot to me. Uh... <laughs> oh, you did make her cry. You really I'm did. sorry. Yeah. I'm terrible. <laughs> um, I'm just very proud of you. Thanks. Well, it's also because we've known each other for so long. Um, from it's when true. we were babies. You... When we were fucked up babies. Yes. yes. <laughs> um and I feel the same way about you and your career and everything that you've done. Um, but you know, 10 sessions was, was something that I think that was one of the rare moments where I actually did know it was going to be really, really hard, really intimate and really scary and possibly, um, I mean, I was afraid for sure before I went and I didn't know what it was going to be like I didn't know what it was going to be like to air all of it um but I worked with uh this producer Susan Burton and Ira Glass and then everyone on This American Life but initially you know uh talking with Susan just about the process of doing it and how we were going to do it. It was very much, um, I trusted her a lot and I felt like we were going to figure out a way to do it that, um, you know, we were going to explore this possible therapy and therapy in general in a way that isn't heard enough. Um, I think people are still, I mean, I think when we talk about stigma, like there's still a huge cross-section of, the population that thinks about therapy and is like, ah, that's not really for me. Um, and then also it's not available. I mean, it's just too expensive. It's prohibitive and not covered by insurance a lot of the time. And so this idea that you could do something in 10 sessions and that it really could shift the way that you approach the world, um, was kind of amazing to me. Um, so, I felt like it was amazing and scary 
Um, but I felt like I really, really trusted Dr. Kaysen, who was the doctor who was going to do it with me. And we had talked extensively beforehand about kind of process. You know, she consulted an ethical um, psychiatrist, I think. I'm not, I um, can't remember exactly what her title was, but she consulted about what it would mean to kind of actively do journalism and therapy at the same time. And there was a lot of preparation that went into the two weeks that ended up unfolding. And I think that because I felt so secure in that, and part of that security was also if the 10 sessions were so scary and so intimate that I couldn't air them, then I wouldn't. Like that was part of the conversation I had with Susan and... um you know, I, I never thought that that would be the case because I am a pretty open person and I did feel like it was an important thing to try and figure out and do. Um, and I wanted to do it like professionally. It was this new challenge of like, how do you tell this story in this way? And it was really different for me. Um, and I, you know, so I think they, that was sort of how it felt okay to do. Right. I, and we should say that you were processing a, a young sexual assault, um, just because I think the context is, I didn't give context to it. But um, do you think it worked? Yeah. I mean, I um, I feel like it changed my feelings about just how I deal with a lot of things and also what my expectations are for life and for what my life should feel like and look like and, you know, how I want to be treated by people around me and how I want to treat people. Um, it worked in the sense that I felt really changed by it. Um, and in a really, really positive way. Uh, you know, I still cry ridiculously at things, as evidenced from previous <laughs> moments. But well, I, yeah, <laughs> but it's it really like, um, you know, the the process of it just it's another tool, right? It's like what I was talking about earlier, where all the tools you can build to help in terms of moving forward and knowing that they're there they're all helpful. Um, when I think about things that get really complicated on my mind, I try and go back to kind of some of the worksheets. I try and like think about all the different narratives, like all the different possibilities. And I, a lot of my anxiety has really dissipated. Not all of it because life is life, but you know, I think that, um, when mental came out, it was really, really hard for me to accept when people said nice things about it, that people responded to it in certain ways, and to actually enjoy the process of releasing a book because it's, I mean, writing as, you know, writing a book and releasing a book as a trauma in itself because it's so crazy. <laughs> um, yeah. But then, you know, when it's awful. And when this book came out, I really... I just have had a different experience. I really have felt like every time something positive is happening, I really can hear it and feel it. And I'm excited for the book and I'm proud of it. And I feel, um, and it's a different kind of book. So maybe that's part of it. Um, but right, it's not, you're not centered in it. Yeah. So it's not like, <laughs> it's, it's much harder when you're writing a memoir and you're like, yeah. Oh fuck. You're like, they, they, yeah. <laughs> they didn't like me. Like, why? Exactly. Why didn't they like me? Or they did like me. Why? Yeah. You know, that's not <laughs> Like, what's wrong with them? Like, they like, yeah. aren't reading closely enough. Totally. Yeah. 100%. So, Jamie, I was just going to ask, because we should wrap up. How can people find you? Um, They can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, email you know, whatever, I'll respond to almost anything. So, and I, and, and it's <laughs> under your name. Uh, Jamie Rose Lowe is my Instagram and Jamie Rose Lowe at Gmail is my email and 
Kick Like a Girl One is my Twitter because I started tweeting when I was covering Women's World Cup for ESPN. <laughs> um, and I was like, I hate Twitter, but I guess this will be my handle. And now <laughs> I'm stuck with it forever, which is fine. Um, and then Facebook as Jamie Lowe. And it's spelled like Jamie, J A I M E. Um, because I think my parents maybe thought I would be a Latino male when I was born. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. This has been really fantastic. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's been Thank really, you. really wonderful to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. If you like the show, as I say every week, please rate and review it on the platform where you're listening. If you don't, please don't say anything at all. You can find us on Patreon if you're looking for exclusive merch um, or exclusive episodes. We have a lot of fun stuff happening this month. It's patreon.com backslash everything is fine. We're also on Instagram at EIF podcast or on Facebook and Twitter. You can find Kim at her blog girls of a certain age.com. And if you want to email us, we love hearing feedback. It is everything is fine, the podcast at gmail.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.